0: So uh, Brandon is going to be leading us today. Uh, He's going to be in Revelation 4. That's on page 1,030. If you don't have a Bible, 1,030 and those black Bibles around in the chairs, please grab one. And Mr. Noah is going to come up to read. Noah's got an all-time voice. This is good stuff right here. Um, um, And so please stand as we uh, read God's word. Revelation chapter four. After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he sat there and he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in humility and in reverence before your word. I pray that today we would behold the glory and the radiance and the beauty of God, that we would tremble in his presence, we would take refuge in his sovereignty, and we would worship in joy. So I pray that this morning you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we approach your word. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. So be with us. Be with me. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, Father, and that your name would be exalted and glorified this morning. In Jesus' victorious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure that most of you have driven on I-70, and if you haven't, well, two things. First, count your blessings, but second, you're also missing out on some of the world's most beautiful mountains. The I-70 road, it connects you from Denver, and it leads you to all the beautiful mountains, ski resorts, hiking destinations, camping destinations, and it's simultaneously loved and hated. It's loved because it does connect you to all of these beautiful mountains, and it is hated because of how bad the traffic can be and how bad the road conditions can be. The ever-increasing traffic combined with how bad drivers can be with just a light dusting of snow usually detracts me from making the trek up there. But when I do make the trek, when I endure the Californian drivers, and when I summit the peak or ski the slopes, it is always worth it. And if you have driven on I-70, you've likely gone through the Eisenhower Tunnel. It takes you under the Rocky Mountains, the Continental Divide, and it spans about 1.7 miles. And so if you're going westbound from Denver, through the Eisenhower Tunnel, and you come out on the other side, you'll have likely seen a pretty drastic change of weather and scenery, in some cases. You're just humming along, you're going through, and on one side it can be perfectly clear and sunny, on the other side it can be windy and a snowstorm. Uh, It just always surprises me, the contrast. I remember one time a group of us were headed up on a road trip, coming westbound from Denver, around midnight, going through the Eisenhower Tunnel, clear on one side, we came out the other side, and it was white-out, blizzard conditions. And if you know, you descend a hill pretty quickly after you exit the tunnel. And so I just remember incredibly low visibility, white-out conditions, having to go as slow as possible down the mountain, watching cars slip and slide off the road. And it just, it just surprised me how different the weather can be on either side of the tunnel. And so today, we're going to see the author of Revelation be swept up by the Holy Spirit and taken through an open door standing in heaven. And on the other side of the door is the throne room of God. He goes through this open door, and his change of scenery is incredible. There's even a change of weather. He journeys, he drives through the Eisenhower Tunnel, and what he sees on the other side is awe-inspiring. And so today, we'll see that when we enter through the open door in heaven, and when we survey the throne room of God, we'll behold God's holiness and his sovereignty and it will climax in worship. So, Revelation is a pretty intimidating book of the Bible to approach. And so before we proceed, I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. It's called the the letter is called The Revelation to John, not The Revelations to John, as many of us often call it. So, now that the biggest hurdle is cleared, we can proceed through the text. Uh, We see that Revelation is a series of symbolic visions, and it's very clearly steeped in Old Testament prophecy. The literary genre of Revelation is a mixture of apocalyptic, prophetic, and epistle. And usually when we think of apocalyptic, we think of zombies. But that's not the case here in the Bible. What the Bible means by apocalyptic is it's really a tool that lifts the veil between heaven and earth and gives us a glimpse into God's unfolding plans for history. Revelation pulls back the curtain on the unseen realities that are past, present, and still to come. And the revelation is communicated to John while he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And there's a lot of debate on when this letter was penned and which John penned this letter. Was it John, the beloved disciple, or was it another John? Not entirely sure, but what's important to note is that whenever this letter was penned, it was penned amidst much Christian suffering and persecution. Commentator G.K. Beale says, "...the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes, even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination." So in the first three chapters of Revelation, John sees a vision of the Son of Man, which is Jesus' most used way to describe himself. And Jesus tells John to write down the things that he sees, those that are and those that are to come. Jesus then addresses seven churches in Asia Minor, and that number seven is symbolic, here in Revelation but throughout the entire scriptures. It's symbolic for completeness or fullness. And because of that, Jesus' encouragement for faithful Christians to persevere under temptation also applies to us today, just as it did to those seven churches back in John's day. So my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that your view of God's sovereignty would deepen, that you would tremble at his holiness, and that you would worship in joy. And so to do this, we're going to walk through the text verse by verse while highlighting God's holiness and highlighting God's sovereignty. And we will conclude by seeing how all of that culminates in worship. So let us, with John, enter through the open door in heaven And behold, the throne room of God. So, look with me at verse 1. After this, I looked and behold. Well, let's stop there and ask, after what? After what, John? John is indicating a new vision that is sequentially taking place after his first vision of the Son of Man and after the first vision of the letters to the seven churches. So, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. John, and by extension, us as his modern day readers, are being ushered and led up through this open door to get a glimpse of what's taking place in heaven at this very moment. We are being ushered up to the throne room of God for a preview and for a foretaste of what heaven is like. Then John hears a voice speaking to him like a trumpet. This is the same loud, triumphant voice that John heard back in chapter 1. It is the voice of Jesus commanding John to come up to the throne room and behold the throne of God. So next we see that there are differences of interpretation of what Jesus means by I will show you what must take place after this, but it's likely referring to the last days, which was an expression used throughout the New Testament to explain the time between Christ's resurrection and his ascension and between his second coming. So verse 3. At once, John was in the spirit, and his vision continued onward, upward through the open door. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This throne is the first thing that captivates John's attention when he enters into the throne room. And we'll notice that throughout this chapter, everything is described by its relational proximity to the throne. And this is because the throne, and more specifically, the one seated on the throne, is the focal point of this chapter. Not only this chapter, but the focal point of the whole universe. The one who sits on the throne is none other than the Lord God Almighty. And at this point in Revelation, there should likely be a warning sign telling you to proceed at your own risk. Because what John is about to see is terrifying. It is dangerous, and it is pure holiness. We see that John is enveloped in blazing color. The Lord God Almighty has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne there is a rainbow that has the appearance of emeralds. And if you're like me, you're probably asking, well, what's a jasper and what's a carnelian? Well, they're gemstones. They're stones. And in this scene, there are three gemstones, jasper, carnelian, and emeralds. And collectively, they represent God's majesty and splendor and glory. And gemstones and diamonds were likely miscut during this time period and, and low on the clarity ranking scale. But we'll see that light is being refracted as it shines through these stones. So what John is seeing is a vision that is really beyond his articulation. It's beyond his comprehension. And he's trying as best he can to communicate and to paint us a picture of what this heavenly scene is like. But he's limited in his human language and vocabulary. He is trying to illustrate what he saw by immersing us in vivid and blinding color and light. So from this throne, brilliant colors explode, bounding and bouncing around the throne room. Have you ever looked at the sun, even for a second? It's often usually more than we can bear. It's blinding. Permanent and irreversible damage can happen when we look at the sun. The UV lights will literally burn a hole in your retinal tissue and destroy your rods and cones. The power of the sun is a faint reflection of the unapproachable light that is the glory of God. God spoke the sun into existence. He upholds the sun by the very word of his power. It is sustained by God. And in this scene, we see that light radiates and permeates the throne room. It is the source of all beauty. It is the source of all glory. It is blinding. And Jesus beckons John to come up here and to behold the beauty of the glory of God. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns. Again, notice the proximity. The throne is the epicenter around the majesty. And then around that is 24 other thrones with 24 elders seated on them. And who are these elders? That's a great question, and you'll likely get a different answer depending on who you ask. Is it conquering Christians, the redeemed saints, the 24 priestly division that David organizes? Is it the 24 Levitical worship leaders? Is it the 12 tribes of Israel combined with the 12 apostles? Maybe. Could be any of these. What I think is important, though, is that they represent the universal church collectively. Because Jesus says to the church in Sardis, one chapter before, nevertheless, chapter 3, that to the one who conquers will be given or will be clothed in white garments. And then before that, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, to the one who conquers will be given the crown of life. This language sounds familiar. So perhaps these elders are conquering Christians. Or maybe they're elders because they are representatives. And they represent the priesthood that is believers. And it could also likely be a combination of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, just symbolizing, representing the collective, true Israel, all believers of all time. But let's not be too dogmatic about the symbolism that we see in Revelation. Rather than get bogged down by exactly who these elders are, let's know where these elders are. They are around the throne, the throne. They are not on the throne. And likewise... You are not on the throne, and I am not on the throne. The first thing that John sees when he comes to the open door is the throne, with one seated on it. And we see echoes of Daniel 7, Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, riddled throughout this chapter. These prophets all beheld thrones in their heavenly temple visions. And this is highlighting the fact that God is sovereignly reigning and ruling from this throne. This is a past, present, and it's a future reality. He is sovereignly orchestrating all things from this throne with the purpose of building his eternal kingdom. One pastor helpfully asked this question. Does it ever bother you that you are not on the throne? Does it bother you that you are not on this throne? because I think our tendency and our desire is to build and protect our own little kingdoms. God's kingdom is there, it's just in the peripherals, and our kingdom is the kingdom that's in focus. We work hard to ensure that our kingdom meets our earthly needs and wants and desires. And if it happens to fit in with God's kingdom, then that's great. But the moment that God's kingdom places its demands on us and places our kingdom in jeopardy, we realize that we are not as open-handed as we once said we were. We're all about God's kingdom until it doesn't line up with what we have in mind and what we have plans. And when that happens, there's a tension there. And then we try to justify this tension in some obscure, overly spiritualized way. With our lips, we proclaim, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, while we clench our earthly desires and wants with an iron grip. We labor and we grind to keep our kingdoms exactly how we want. We strive after relationships because we think that's what will fulfill us and that's what God wants for us. We work hard for that promotion to earn a couple extra bucks because we think that, hey, we can give more if I get more money. And we say, hey, we love church, but I don't want to get burned out. I just want a healthy dose of church. I want to keep it at arm's length. God doesn't want me to get burnt out, right? But we see here that these elders are seated around the throne. They surround the throne. In fact, everything in this chapter surrounds the throne. So does your life, does your life surround the throne? Or is your life the center and Jesus is on the sideline as a cheerleader? Take an inventory of your life. What is at the center that needs to be sidelined? Are your earthly pursuits intended to build God's kingdom or your own kingdom? One poet puts it like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So are your pursuits, hopes, desires centered around the throne? What is the year 2020 going to be centered around? Are your New Year's resolutions steeped in a genuine desire to advance the kingdom of God or advance the kingdom of self? Jesus beckons us to come up to the throne room of God and see the one who is seated on the throne, seated on the throne. So let this reality shape how you think about and how you structure your life this year. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning's and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. So now, merge this fiery thunderstorm with all of the blazing, vivid, blinding light that we just saw. This should produce something in us. This should produce fear. To be in the presence of God is dangerous. As a kid, I used to love to sit in the garage with my dad and watch a summer thunderstorm watching the lightning dance around the sky and hearing the cracks of thunder. It was enthralling to watch, but it was also slightly terrifying. We were in the garage, we had shelter, but can you imagine being out exposed on the plains in the midst of a thunderstorm? It would be terrifying. A lot of you have dogs, and you know that when there's a thunderstorm, your dog cowers in fear at the crack of thunder. This is a right response. The dogs understand. And so readers of John's day would have read this and immediately thought back to Mount Sinai where God's presence descends on the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, and it says this, there were thunder and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then it goes on to say, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people of Israel were terrified of God's presence. They trembled before him. This is the God whose very presence shakes the earth's foundations. Smoke and fire surround his presence and engulf his enemies. The seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, are symbolic for the fullness the full presence of God, Israel was right in being terrified. Israel's instinct to tremble before the Lord's presence was a right response. When John first see the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, John falls before him as though dead. We often don't understand who it is that we are worshiping. We don't understand who it is that we are approaching. In Ezekiel, Uh, Ezekiel sees an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant lights when the Lord's presence comes. And what does Ezekiel do? He falls face down when the Lord appears, likely unable and unworthy to even behold and look upon the Lord. And similarly, in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, he sees the heavenly temple filled with smoke, and he sees the Lord high and exalted upon his throne, and Isaiah cries out, woe to me I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. These prophets beheld the glory of God and trembled. Israel beheld the glory of God and trembled. So how is it that you approach God? How do you approach God in prayer, in worship? Is he a grandfatherly figure who is soft and gentle, ushering you to jump into his lap? Is he your best bud that you just want to give some nucks to and kick it with? Is he a genie in a bottle who waits for you to come and ask and grant your three wishes? Maybe it's time to have your view of God shattered and rebuilt. Stephen Lawson said that we have replaced reverence for being relaxed. We have replaced the infinite with the informal. We have replaced transcendence with trendy. We often try to domesticate God. We try to tame the untameable. God is not our show horse that we break and stow in a bard to ride around with pride whenever and wherever we so please. Are there characteristics of God that are grandfatherly, that are a friend and a giver of good gifts? Absolutely. But I think that we absolutize those traits and base our entire view of God off of them and evade viewing God as holy. Strangely enough, this chapter in Revelation was pretty vital to me becoming a Christian. Um, and that's why I was just eager to share this passage with you all this morning. And then when I first read this passage and heard it preached, my view of God was shattered. Uh, I can't remember the exact day that I became a Christian and that Jesus changed my life, but I have it pegged to about within a month. And it was in that month time frame that I went to a church in Denver and I heard this passage, Revelation four taught and read aloud, and I just remember walking away with an awestruck sense of who God was. I was just overwhelmed about his holiness and what's taking place in the throne room of heaven right now, and I think that a proper understanding and a grasp of God's character, it should make me want to hide myself from his raw power and his holiness, and I should want to echo Israel's cry at the feet of Mount Sinai and say, do not let me see God lest I die. We, as God's people, were not created to worship a mundane, passive, wish-granting genie God. We were created to behold and to savor the majesty, the glory, the beauty, the power of an all-consuming, infinite God who sits enthralled on his heavenly throne. So fear the Lord your God. Tremble in his presence. When we have a high view of God and his sovereignty, we will have a profound and a right-placed fear. Don't dare attempt to try to tone down God's holiness or to water it down. Rather, approach him humbly in utter reverence and awe. Collectively, as a church, and individually, we need to grow in our fear of the Lord. We need to grow in our reverence toward God. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And so, as John is describing the scene, again, there are strong allusions to Ezekiel's vision. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he sees four angelic beings in the sky, which have actually striping similarities to what we're going to see in the coming verses. And above these angelic beings that Ezekiel sees was an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal, which is the same language we see here in Revelation 4. So we see that the sea of glass in the throne room is the floor of heaven, and it's the ceiling of God's created universe. And this may be symbolic of God's holiness as he is separate and distinct from his creation. The sea that looks like crystal, it says, it likely is refracting that blinding, vivid light that we saw earlier. And in these ancient times, the sea was viewed as chaotic and dangerous. It was unpredictable. It was untamable. There were no weather models to tell you the surface winds or the wave heights or the visibility or the sea temperatures or upcoming storms. The sea was wild, and it still is wild. And as Beal points out, this sea here in Revelation, it represents the reality of evil. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees that before the Ancient of Days, which is God, took his throne, Daniel sees the winds stirring up a great sea, and from the sea emerged four terrifying beasts. And these beasts were symbolic for oppressive and destructive kingdoms. So why why is this important for us? Why is this all important? It's because the heaven, the sea in heaven, is still. It is calm. It is serene. It is like a sheet of glass. This reality... Would have given so much encouragement to John's original readers. As they were enduring persecution and suffering on earth, they could take comfort and find refuge, knowing that in heaven there is peace, there is a stillness, there's a calmness. This peace was promised to them. This peace is promised to us. There is nothing in the universe that is outside of God's control. He is entirely sovereign. And it may appear that God is not in control when we witness injustice and suffering on this earth, but God means for all that he does, for his glory and for our ultimate good. Trials are used by God to build and to grow and to refine our faith. The demonic and chaotic sea is stilled by the sovereign word of God. In the Gospel of Mark, we hear a familiar story of Jesus calming a storm. One evening, Jesus and his disciples hop on some boats and take across a body of water. And a great and furious storm came. And waves were breaking into the boat, filling the boat with water. His disciples are obviously terrified and freaking out. And and where is Jesus? He's taking a nap in the stern of the boat. And so they wake him, rather aggressively, I would probably think. And they ask pointedly and fearfully, Do you not care that we are going to die? Jesus awakes. He rebukes the wind, and he says, Peace, be still. And it says, The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. We can take comfort knowing that God is sovereignly ruling over his creation by his word. We can take comfort in that. And when John details the new Jerusalem at the end of Revelation, he sees that there is a new heaven, and that there's a new earth, and there's no more sea. And this is symbolic of the fact that there will be absolutely no evil when Christ returns to establish his new eternal kingdom. It says in Revelation 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. As believers in Christ, this is our future. So let's keep moving and finish our survey of the throne room of God. Next, we see that all around the throne, on each side, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. Each of them had six wings— "'Eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, "'Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. "'And whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks "'to him who is seated on the throne, the twenty-four elders fall down before him and worship. "'They cast their crowns before the throne and say, "'Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, "'for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created.'" So who are these strange creatures that are on each side of the throne? It's not entirely clear, but there are some helpful hints. Again, back to Ezekiel's vision. He saw similar creatures. Ezekiel sees a storm coming out of the north with flashes of lightning and brilliant color and fire. Sound familiar? He then sees four creatures that have similarities to a human, lion, ox, and eagle. So these creatures could be the guardians of God's glory similar to how the cherubim were the guardians of God's glory in Genesis after Adam and Eve rebelled and were removed from God's presence. These guardians were there to protect. And we also see that these creatures are pretty similar to what Isaiah beheld in his vision. Isaiah sees four seraphim with six wings. With two of their wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with the last two, they flew. So this shows that these creatures, they recognize God's holiness, and they know themselves to be unworthy to be in His presence. They cover their face to shield from the seeing the glory of God, and they cover their feet because they recognize that they're standing on holy grounds. Their multiple eyes are symbolic for their divine omniscience, and as we see throughout the rest of Revelation, they help execute God's judgment. And G.K. Beale says that, although John's depiction is symbolic, Rather than literal, it is nonetheless real in that real beings are being portrayed with real functions. So I think it's important for us not to get wrapped up in the appearance of these angelic beings or of the elders, but rather to understand their function. These angelic beings are near the throne of God in a continual state of worship and adoration and praise. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They are ascribing all glory and honor to the one who sits on the throne. And when scripture wants to highlight something or emphasize something, the words are usually repeated. We know this to be the case in Jesus' day when he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And when he said that, it would indicate to his listeners that, hey, this is about to be real important, so listen. R.C. Sproul said that the Bible doesn't say that God is holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is holy, holy. The Bible said that God is holy, holy, holy. Scripture doesn't say that he is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 but that he is holy, 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 exalting this characteristic of God to the supreme degree. End quote. God is holy. He's holier, and he's holiest. And God's holiness and His sovereignty, it's the basis for why He is worthy to receive all glory, honor, and thanks. Next, it says, The Lord Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And this is representing the fact that God has no beginning and He has no end. He always was. He is always in control over the events of history. And we see that when these creatures, when these four living creatures give glory to God, it sets off a reaction. And the elders respond in more worship. It's kind of like a standing ovation where the applauding builds and builds and builds and builds until everyone is on their feet praising and applauding the performance. Glory can be used to signify God's beauty, honor, worth, and glory. And glory can be two things. It can be intrinsic or it can be ascribed. God is intrinsically all of these things. So when it says that the elders are giving God glory, they're not increasing his intrinsic glory. No, rather they are attributing or crediting him with glory and honor. John Piper says that glory, honor, and strength can be spoken of, spoken of in their objective reality of God or in their subjective response in his creatures. So this chapter builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it crescendos in worship. We see that these 24 elders are responding to the glory by falling down before the throne and casting down their golden crowns. They recognize that God is the creator, that he is the author of all things, that all things find their being in him. And by his spoken word and by his will, they are there, worshiping, existing. God spoke, and the universe found its being. God spoke, and you and I found our being. And by his sovereign will, we are all here today. He is in charge of history. It is not a democracy. God is the ruler, and he's a good ruler. He's a just ruler. He's a loving and merciful ruler. The elders, they lay their crowns down because they know that nothing in them was sufficient to merit receiving a golden crown. These crowns were given to them and they are eager to cast them down before the throne and worship at the feet of God because they know it was because of his great love and his mercy that they were given these crowns in the first place. So how do you approach God? Do you believe that he is worthy of your praise? Do you tremble at the thought of his holiness and his power and his glory? And you may be asking yourself, how is it even possible that we can approach the throne of God if he is so holy and powerful? How can we approach such holiness and not be consumed by his goodness and his power? And that's a good question to ask. How can anyone near the sun and not be consumed by the raw power of the sun? We are rebellious and we are sinners. So how can we evade the righteous and just wrath of God on account of our sinfulness? And it's because of the love and mercy of God our Father. We saw back in verse 3 that there was a rainbow around the throne. And where throughout the scripture have we seen a rainbow before? Noah in Genesis. Genesis. After God saw that every intention of mankind's heart was evil, he flooded and wiped out the earth. But God showed mercy to Noah and his family, and he commissions Noah to be the image bearers that mankind was made to be and to multiply and to fill the earth again. God gives Noah a visible sign of God's mercy. It is the rainbow. The rainbow reminds us of the everlasting covenant between God and man. So Noah was gearing up to be a new kind of Adam, one that would not make the same rebellious mistakes as Adam did. But we know the story. Noah fails, and we are left awaiting one who can truly represent humanity and be the image bearer of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the infinite become infant, in order to live a life wholly pleasing to God the Father. And he exchanged. Jesus exchanged being in the presence of God with being in the presence of sinners. God's just wrath and righteousness was poured out on Jesus on the cross to atone for our sinfulness. In the next chapter of Revelation, in chapter 5, we see Jesus coming on the scene. And we see that he's the only one worthy and capable of doing the will of God. And we see that the whole host of heaven breaks out. And a new joyful song when Jesus comes on the scene. And they saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God. From every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We are enabled to enter the throne and be in the presence of God because of Christ's blood. We also see in Revelation chapter 1, as we kind of mentioned, that John sees a vision of Jesus. And Jesus is described as wearing a long robe with a golden sash. His hair was white, indicating divine wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire, seeing into the hearts of man. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, indicating that he will crush every opponent. His voice like the roar of many waters. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, symbolizing that God's word, it searches hearts and minds and brings judgment and justice upon the rebellious. And it says that his face was like the, sh- like the sun shining in full strength. This is the vision of Jesus. And when John beholds the risen, triumphant King Jesus, he falls at his feet as though dead, we know that that's a right response to beholding God's glory. But what does Jesus do? What's he do? He says in chapter 1, verse 17 Jesus laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Jesus tells John not to fear. Jesus has risen from the grave. He has conquered sin and evil. We don't have to fear death because Jesus overcame death. We don't have to fear destruction or damnation when we place our trust and repentance in the finished work of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Jesus loved us, and he gave himself for us in order to present us faultless before the presence of God, faultless before the throne. In love, God the Father predestined that we would be adopted as sons and daughters as children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of God's will and according to the riches of his grace. Jesus doesn't tell us to refrain from entering the throne. No, he commands John and us to come up here through the open door and behold the glory of God. Jesus wants to give us a glimpse into the heavenly realities that are taking place right now. So, have you placed your trust? In Christ's finished work? Are you going to tremble in reverence, but with peace and comfort and joy, knowing that you are a beloved child of God? Or are you going to attempt to displace the throne of God with the throne of self, and by so doing, face the wrath of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God is holy, and he is sovereign. When we view Him as such, we will fall down and worship because he is worthy of our praise. So maybe today, you need to have your view of God shattered and rebuilt upon the foundations of His holiness. Maybe today, you need to be reminded of, or exposed to the glory of God. Behold, an open door in heaven. Behold the throne of God. Behold the glory, the radiance, the holiness, the beauty of God. Tremble in reverence, take refuge in sovereignty, and worship in joy. To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, reverence, Acknowledging your glory, your holiness, your splendor. And I just ask, Father, that we would walk away from today with a a rebuilt sense of who you are and your character, your holiness, your power, and that we would tremble in your presence, that we would take comfort in your sovereignty, and that we would worship in joy, knowing that we are beloved children of God, knowing that Jesus, you came, you lived, you died on behalf of us to present us holy and blameless before the throne of God. So I pray that today we would walk out from these doors with a profound sense of who you are, God, and that we would live to honor and to glorify you. In Jesus' victorious and precious name we pray, amen.